So the book of Joshua, we, uh, we, we hit a pretty uh, major milestone in our uh, series, His Story, uh, which is talking about the idea, the, the truth, that the Bible is God's story. It's not a story about us primarily. It's a story about God primarily. And the first five books of the Old Testament are the foundational story of the world. And of these, uh, this, this nation, one of the oldest nations on earth that is called the Hebrew people or the Israelites. Traditionally, these first five books are called the Pentateuch or the Torah. And it's shown us many things. It's shown us that God is the ultimate promise keeper. It showed us that God is sovereign and all-powerful. It showed us that human beings have a supremely special purpose in the plan of God. But it also showed us that sin has corrupted that purpose and distorted the image of God within us. And so God had to initiate a rescue plan, and He did that through Israel. And by His law that was given to Israel, God has shaped Israel into a nation, into a unique culture that, is, that, that stands apart from other nations. And it's a nation that's going to be known for certain things having to do with justice and the holiness of God. And while the purposes of God will not be threatened, what we saw last week, we saw last week specifically that the joy and satisfaction and purpose of God's people is conditioned upon their obedience. So let's, let me say that again. We've seen over, I mean, starting in uh, Genesis, we saw the failure, how sin had corrupted Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's family, Joseph and, the, and his brothers. And then we saw them go to Egypt, and, and God delivered them mightily through the Exodus, that even the most powerful ruler on the face of the earth, the most wicked man at that time, Pharaoh, could not even uh, mount opposition against God. God humbled Pharaoh mightily and delivered his people, uh, Israel, out of the nation of Egypt. And as they went into the wilderness, what should have been in about, uh, about an 11-day journey turned into a 40-year uh, trip where an entire generation of Israelites complained about going into the promised land. So God said, okay, then you don't have to. And they died there in that wilderness. And the book of Deuteronomy was given because Moses, as this old man, is standing before this young generation of Israelites wondering if they will be obedient, you know, calling them to faithfulness, calling them to serve God and obey His commands. And then Moses, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, goes up on a mountain and dies. And so it, this question just looms at the end of those first five books. Will they obey or will they disobey? Will they believe the promises of God or will they reject the promises of God? I mean, an entire generation of people died in that wilderness, including their leader Moses, who experienced the truth that the joy and satisfaction and purpose of God's people is conditioned upon their obedience. John Piper, in reflecting upon the end of Deuteronomy, imagined Moses ascending up that mountain called Mount Pisgah. His leadership of Israel was finished, and he didn't get to enter the land of promise. And, and this is what John Piper asks, based on this truth that we've seen. How many conquests of joy have I forfeited through disobedience? I call this the urgency of momentary obedience. 
the urgency of momentary obedience. How many conquests of joy? How many things has God had? And because God knows how, we're op- how we operate and how we just need it this way, has God put something right in front of my face? And I've just, no, I'm not doing that. And I forfeited a conquest of joy. I forfeited a step of faith, a step of obedience through my rebellion or through my disobedience. And sadly, for many of us, those steps of faith are not just little tasks. They're people. Can, can, can I say that again? Those, those little opportunities that God puts in your life, we can, after the fact, kind of say, well, yeah, I missed that opportunity and that opportunity and that opportunity. Listen, those are lives. <laughs> I mean, they really are. And life is precious. And so today, as we dive into the book of Joshua... We want this question to loom large for us because we, and I love, I, I go in and talk to Tanner and, he's, and he's, he says this and I'm like, that's exactly, we've been doing, we've been all been heading in this direction as a church. That every time you encounter the Word of God, what should you be expecting? For God to speak. And when God speaks, there's an invitation. An invitation to obey or an invitation to disobey. And to not obey... Is not just delayed obedience, it's disobedience. And so every time we come into this place, every time, I mean, that's, what, that's what's unique about Sunday mornings together and Sunday evenings and Wednesday nights, but really, really this time is special because as we gather together as a united church family, God speaks. And each one of us are called to obey in ways that the Spirit leads us individually to obey. And we don't want to forfeit. We don't want to be like Moses in this sense and forfeit this conquest of joy. We, we in one sense, we want to be like Joshua. We want, we, want to, we want to take up this call and this command. And you're going to see that today as we look into the, the first couple of chapters here of Joshua. And Joshua, though, is this, uh, is this sequel to Deuteronomy. And these next, this next set of books is a sequel to uh, the Torah or the Pentateuch. They continue to tell us this story about Israel and their quest to manifest God's presence on earth and to reveal the glory of God, albeit imperfectly. And so as we've seen in other books, while much of the narrative is focused on Israel, this is still God's story, and He is the main character. And so let's dive in, shall we? And the first uh, thing that had to be going through the Israelites' mind as uh, this new age of Israel started is who will lead? (laughs) Who will lead? And with that, with that death of Moses, this question arose in the mind of Israel, and yet when you ask that question, immediately, at least we are, and I hope that the Israelites were, but they were met with the promise of God that, well, I've always led you. <laughs> it's not just about Moses. It's not just about Joshua. It's about God working through Moses and God working through Joshua. God has faithfully led His people the entire time. But we do understand that God leads people through human beings that He exalts to leadership, that He calls into service, sacrificial service. Many times when you hear messages about the book of Joshua, what do you get? You get this picture of this uh, young, 
kind of semi-seasoned, maybe a little hipster-like uh, leader who is uh, who's leading this this young generation of Israelites, right? That's the picture you get of Joshua, and we and we uh, we teach this verse to our kids, and we uh, and we maybe even quote First Timothy four twelve. You know, don't not let anybody look down on you because you're young. And Joshua's this young leader, and he's taking this young generation of Israelites into the land. And I I say that's not the that's not accurate. Joshua was no spring chicken. In fact, Joshua is first mentioned in Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, where he is called by Moses to go in and fight uh, Amalek, the king of the Amalekites. And so obviously Exodus chapter 17, I mean, Joshua's fighting age, and he's called on by Moses and he becomes Moses' young assistant. Moses' young assistant, Numbers chapter 11, verse 28. He's, he's, he's this picture, this really cool picture of Joshua as Moses is in the tabernacle meeting with God. Guess where Joshua is? Right outside. And so Moses had Joshua as his right-hand man, so to speak. And so when spies were going to be sent into the land uh, in, uh, in Numbers chapter 14, they estimate that he was about 44, 45 years old. Right, and we all know how long that Egypt, I mean that Israel, uh, stayed in the wilderness. How long? Forty years. So, how old is Joshua? If you do a little reverse engineering, how old is Joshua when they uh, when they're crossing the Jordan? When they're starting Joshua chapter one, eighty-five years old, and he leads Israel for twenty-five years, and he dies at one hundred and ten. And so, when you when you when you read uh, Joshua chapter one verse eight. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. When you read those verses, don't think about your kids or your grandkids. Think about you. I hear adults say all the time, I can't memorize God's Word anymore. Well, God didn't let Joshua have that excuse, did He? He said, no, you soak in this Word, Joshua. You meditate, and then you get up and you go. You lead. And you say, well, it's a different time, different era. Listen, Folks lead to, I mean, folks live to their 110 these days. I mean, they're few and far between. But you, you don't need to think that this is that far removed from where we are. This is, this is not a call to a young man to do a young man's task. This is a call to an 85-year-old man to do a task that's going to take God to complete. And guess what God's calling you to do? The same thing. <laughs> Doesn't matter how old or young you are. If God's calling you into leadership, men, if God's calling you into service and leadership, ladies, it's not about your age. Everybody's like, I'd like to amen that, but I'm kind of, kind of stepping on my toes here, so I don't, I'm not so sure. Amen. You know, I mean, you're like amen for the person next to you. I've been telling you that, you know, right? I mean, let's be honest. We, I, that's the way I picture Joshua. 
as this young man called to do a young man's task, but any task that God calls you to is not dependent on you. And that's a theme that's going to be fleshed out even more in the book of Joshua. And so he led Israel for 25 years, and during that time he wrote this book. And this book is separated into four main parts. Chapters 1 through 5 record Joshua's leadership of Israel. Joshua is presented as the new leader of Israel, just like Moses. And God wants the people of Israel to have confidence that his presence is with them. And so he manifests his presence in Joshua's life and in his leadership, just like he did for Moses. And so like Moses, Joshua calls the people to obey the covenant commandments that had been given to Israel. Just like Moses, Joshua sends out spies into the land, which has a much better result than it did the last time. Look in verse 16 of chapter 1. The spies, they answered Joshua, and they said, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, that's a stretch, uh, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. And so the people, and when he wants to send spies out, the people say, okay, we'll do it. And they go, the spies go, and then uh, the, the rest of the story opens up. But you need to, the, the other thing that he does is just like Moses, Joshua sees the power of God at work to stop a body of water and lead the people across. Look in Joshua chapter 3. Subheading in my Bible is Israel crosses the Jordan. Now listen, to make it abundantly clear that it was the Lord who was responsible for this, Joshua chapter 3, look at verse 13. It says, And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, which was the, the piece of furniture uh, that carried the, 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 the tablets of the Ten Commandments, this ark of the covenant, when uh, the priests who were carrying it, when the soles of their feet touched the earth, Touched the waters of the Jordan. The waters were cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So, whereas the last time it was a Red Sea and God parted it, this time it's the Jordan River, which is what separates the plains of Moab from Canaan. And as they're getting prepared to go across it, as the priests touch, and as they go into the middle, the water just kind of stops in its place, and the priests stay there, and this entire band of people come across the Jordan. All throughout Numbers, we saw faint-hearted Israelites saying, well, we can still go back to Egypt if things work out. God wanted to cut that off. And so what did he do? He said, I'm going to get you across the Jordan, but if you want to go back, you're on your own. <laughs> right? It wasn't even an option. There was no going back from where God took them. And that's a really good bit position to be in. It simply helps us see more clearly what is always at stake in obeying or disobeying God. And we need to pray for God to put us in situations like this. God, God put me in a situation where going backwards is not an option and going forwards in your strength, in your power is my only option. Which is why we encourage sacrificial giving, which is why we encourage tithing, which is why we encourage evangelism, which is why we encourage mission trips. It's why we encourage all of these God-sized tasks, because if we're doing stuff that we can do, then guess what? We're not going to rely upon the power of God. We're just going to do things that we're comfortable with, and in doing things that we're comfortable with, we set ourselves up as God. 
That's why we revert back to that always. Is because we don't like someone telling us what to do. We don't like somebody challenging us. And yet, God put them in a position to where they couldn't go back. They could only go forward. We need to pray for God to put us in positions like this as well. So to remind themselves of God's power that was on display after they crossed over the Jordan, they, all, the, all the men in every family, they took the symbol of the covenant, which is circumcision, and then they celebrated the Passover. And look in chapter 5. Joshua, uh, after they had done these things, Joshua meets this interesting figure in verse 13 called the commander of the Lord's army, or of Yahweh's army. I remind you that every time you see that uh, word Lord in small caps in your Bible, that is the, that's the covenant name of God, Yahweh, or Jehovah, as, as some translations have it. It says in verse 13 of chapter 5, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his, with his, uh, with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, just think about that, right? You've seen God do this mighty stuff, and you're, on, you're, on, you're in enemy territory. Are you for us or for our enemies? No. It's very interesting. Look at what he says, though. He says, But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place you're standing is holy. Sounds familiar, right? God is with them. And He's not just with them angelically, because I think this is a pre-incarnate form of the Lord Jesus Christ here. It's what we call uh, a Christophany or a theophany in Scripture. God manifesting Himself in human form. And this is Jesus standing before Joshua saying, I've got this. Because the fact is, is that in, in the next section, in chapters 6-12, through 12, there, this story is going to continue by telling about the battles that Israel fought. But there's two battles that are put right at the very beginning, the battle of Jericho and the battle of Ai. And these two battles are put at the beginning for a reason. They had many more battles, but these two battles are put there for a reason. Chapter 6 through 8 tells this story of these two battles. A very familiar story about Jericho. When you combine the commander of the Lord's army with what we know about Jericho, here's what, here's what God's saying through this story. Victory is from the Lord. Hands down, bank on it 100%. Victory is always from the Lord. And the only way to experience victory is to walk with God in obedience. And chapter 6 through 8 served to prove that. So chapter 6, uh, you, 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 you've read it before. You've heard Sunday school lessons about it. But basically, uh, the, the people of Israel, led by uh, their, their choir, right? They had a choir in Israel, led by their choir. They go and they march around, around Jericho, right? And then on the seventh day, they blow the trumpets and the walls come tumbling down, just like the song says. That's just one story, though. Victory is of the Lord. But the next part of this is that the only way to experience victory is to walk with God in obedience. So turn to chapter 7. Subheading in your Bible says, Israel defeated by Ai. So what happened? Right? 
If you're, if you're reading a story, this story and you see, hey, uh, they've just conquered this huge city and they didn't have to draw a sword. There was no battle plan. There was no, you know, archers at the ready and, you know, fire and all. It was nothing like that. They blew a trumpet and the walls came down. And now in chapter 7, they, it says... It says, the people of Israel broke faith. I hope in all of these stories you see that, the, that humanity is on just like a carousel of foolishness and stubbornness of heart. It's, it's just like we're going around and around. There's, there's no new thing under the sun, like Solomon says. I mean, it, there's just new Israel, same as old Israel. Israel broke faith in this, you know, the story about Achan, the sin of Achan in verse 10 of chapter 7. Basically, there was this one man, and when they plundered Jericho and they took all that was in it, Achan said, well, this is pretty nice, and nobody's going to miss it, so I'm going to steal this thing that is supposed to be the Lord's, and I'm going to take it, and I'm going to hide it under my tent. And so he did. He took the, uh, the items that were supposed to be sacred under the Lord, and he kept them for himself. All right? And as he kept them for himself, Israel's strength was taken from it. Israel was cut off from victory. You see, the purpose of chapter 7 is to point out that hidden sin always cuts off victory, the victory of God. Hidden sin doesn't limit God. It limits God's people. Hidden sin does not limit God. It limits God's people. And so they deal with that. Judgment falls upon Achan and his family because uh, as, as we've seen all throughout when we talk about families, uh, families have a leader. And when that leader sinned, he was not just choosing something for himself. Hear me, parents. He was not choosing something for himself, but he was choosing it for his children also. The, the urgency of obedience, right? And so he chose sin. God judged that sin. And when Israel had obeyed the Lord and they had uncovered this sin, then in chapter 8, after that sin is dealt with, victory is restored and AI falls. Now, if you've ever struggled, and, and maybe some of you are right now, maybe you're hearing about plundering Jericho, and you're hearing about the cities, or, or maybe you've read the, this, these accounts, and you say, this is really violent. It's kind of disturbingly violent. The, the one thing that you're always going to get with me is that we're not afraid of any questions, Okay. So whether it's questions you ask me one-on-one -on -one or you text me late into the night or whatever, we're not afraid of those questions. And that's why tonight at 5 p.m. when we come back for our evening worship service, we're going to talk about does, does this book, do these passages commend violence? Is there ever a time where somebody can look back at these passages and justify what they're doing violently in the present day? Because there are some people who look at these passages of the Bible and say, 
I can't serve a God who would command those things. And there's other people that they look at these passages and they say, well, there's the justification for what I really want to do. It's a scary thing to mishandle the truth. And so when we avoid questions, what do we do? We open the door for people to mishandle truth because they don't understand and they create their own interpretation and that's not good. And so tonight, if you've ever had this question, five o'clock, come back. We're going we're gonna to deal with this question about does the Bible commend violence through verses like these. But for now, it's important for us to understand that the initial hope was for the people of Canaan to hear about this God who had parted the Jordan, who had stopped the Jordan in its tracks, to hear about this God who had delivered Israel from Egypt, to hear about this God who had, um, who had uh, done all of these works and wonders, to hear about Him and to turn and worship Him. And you say, well, Ryan, I haven't seen that. Well, you remember Rahab? What happened? Rahab and her entire family were spared because she turned and submitted to the God of Israel and became an Israelite. In fact, there's an entire people group called the Gibeonites, right? The Gibeonites. You can turn over uh, to uh, chapter 9. And the Gibeonites, very creatively, they go and they make peace with the people of Israel. And they become a part, of the, a part of Israel. And so God's design for Israel, you'll see a little bit of this tonight, God's design for Israel was to be a sword of justice in the hand of Almighty God in the land of Canaan. But it wasn't just about the sword, it was about extending mercy as well. Rahab is exalted as an object of mercy. The Gibeonites are objects of mercy. And by God's design, God wanted these people to repent. and to, It was almost like the Israelites' great commission. They, they were to declare the excellencies of God. And as people wanted to escape, they would come and they would find their culture, their new culture in Israel as they would become Israelites. You'll see this a little bit more tonight. And so that's chapters 6 through 12. Then chapters 13 through 22 uh, tell us about... Uh, how Joshua divides the land. They say, uh, <laughs> some of the people I was reading, they said this is one of the most boring parts of the book of Joshua, if we can just be honest, because it's like reading a map with no pictures, right? And so, uh, but it's, these things are important because this is the faithfulness of God to deliver upon His promises to Abraham coming out in the most minute of details. And so, uh, beginning in chapter 13, you see uh, the inheritance to the east of the Jordan, inheritance to the west of the Jordan, Caleb's request and inheritance, and then the allotment for Judah, the allotment for Ephraim and Manasseh. I mean, you just go on and on. Allotment of the remaining land, inheritance for Benjamin, chapter 19, inheritance for Simeon. And, and this is, like, once again, this is the place that you get when you're reading through the Bible in a year, and you're like, okay, skip that, and skip that, too. I can't pronounce any of those names. All right, uh, J's are sure, okay? And you, and you just kind of go through it. And we understand that, right? We're not Hebrew, but you need to recognize for these people, it was huge. It was extremely significant. It, it, it would be like you praying for a family member to be healed, and all of a sudden you get a call from the hospital saying, they're awake. There's no cancer, right? It's, it's, it's significant for them in that way. God delivers upon his promises. And then chapters 23 and 24 are Joshua's final message to Israel before he dies. 
And just like Moses looked at the people and told them that they needed to obey in the same way Joshua looks at them and says, if you don't obey, you'll experience the same divine judgment that the Canaanites did, and you'll be kicked out of the land. And so real quickly, what, what can we see? What, or what, what lessons have we learned, and, and what can we see? I just, want, I just want to point you to three significant things. First of all, God is faithful to lead through the leaders He raises up. God is faithful to lead through the leaders He raises up. Listen, authority is a part of everyone's life. The better we understand the authorities God has put in our lives, the better off we'll be. It doesn't go well if people throw off the family authority, that's the parents. It doesn't go well with people if they throw off the civil authorities, that's the law. <laughs> but in some way, when we talk about spiritual authority, there's, most people don't really have a concept of that being something universal that God has given to His people. Next week, we're going to see the tragic consequences of this idea. The, the, the book of Joshua tells us that God is faithful to raise up spiritual leaders in their lives. The book of Judges is when everybody's just doing their own thing in this kind of relative environment. And it's just extremely tragic and disturbing consequences. And so we need to recognize that God still raises up leaders to whom we are called to submit. And there's a balance in this. And the balance is, you're not a spiritual lone ranger. You're not called to live alone. But then the other side of that is, I'm not your pope, right? I'm not the voice of God to you. Please don't treat me like that. I want to encourage you. I want to, I want to help you navigate with truth. But I'm, 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 not, I'm not the one who's saying, you can't hear from the Lord, I'm going to hear from the Lord for you. That's, you'll never hear me say that. And yet, there's a balance here. And the balance is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, which says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls. God still raises up faithful leaders. And it's our call as leaders of this church, as deacons and pastors, it's our call to serve you out of a desire to lead with love and sacrifice. And God calls you to submit to us in worship to Him. And secondly, though, second thing we see is that God is faithful to give victory, but hidden sin cuts off our experience of that victory. The story of Achan proves that our sin will always find us out. Numbers 32, 23 is where we get that phrase. Your sin will always find you out. And the story of Achan proves that. It also, uh, and, and you, might, you might say, how? Because when you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. But just like we said last week, when you choose to sin, you're choosing to become a certain kind of person. Remember that quote from C.S. Lewis last week about every choice you make, you're becoming something? Part of the choice that you make when you choose sin is you are choosing to harden your spiritual sensitivity to the grievousness of that sin. Now, this is, I, I, I don't want to make light of this, but I also don't want to make it too personal, you know? But I feel like this is a point we really need to illustrate. And so I'm going to do it the only way I know how and uh, use something that's less than human. But uh, imagine, and my daughter might hurt me for this, but imagine uh, I have uh, a stray dog at my house. And that dog comes to my house, and I don't want it there. So every time I go out, I kick it. And that, this, I know, this is going to be horrible, but just, it's never right to abuse animals, okay? But just hear me out. 
The first time I kick it and I hear it yelp, what do I feel? I probably feel like a little bit of, man, I hate to do that, but I don't want this dog here. And so because I don't feel conviction or I don't follow that conviction, the rest of the time when I go out and I just do it over and over and over again, you know what happens to the human heart? You just become numb to how awful that is. And we wonder how people can do the things that they do How somebody can pull a fire alarm and sit there and just take people out as they run out the door, like happened this week? How can you get to that place? Listen, it's not about like some kind of demon possession just happens just like that. It's not. Rarely is it ever, and I've never heard of a a scenario like that, but you know how it happens? One little compromise and exposure to lies, deception, demonic activity. That's real, y'all. And when you sin in your life, you are uniting yourself with that kingdom. You are are giving yourself over to the Father of lies when you choose to sin, even as a believer. We're not just talking about unbelievers. When you choose to disobey God, you are taking the part of yourself that God gave you to worship Him with, and you're choosing to worship yourself, or you're choosing to worship Satan. And as you make that choice, you are becoming something. And you become calloused to the kind of impact that you're having on yourself and the kind of impact that you're having on others. And over time, without repentance and restoration, you forge a stronghold in your own heart for the enemy to take up residence. And instead of letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, talking specifically to believers, you create unrest and and just this spiritual chaos within yourself. And you harbor a dwelling place for for the lies of the enemy. And because all behavior is preceded by belief, then you just take a couple of things and twist them around. And before you know it, you've become the thing you hate. Listen, the seed form of murder is in every one of us right now. The seed form of deception to even the person that we love the most is within every single one of us of us. Don't you doubt it for a moment. This is why fearing God first and foremost is of utmost importance. Hidden sin cuts off our experience of victory and makes us become something that we don't want to be. But lastly, God is faithful to bring us rest. Sin constrains God's desires and your desires for God. Your desire is to have peace and His desire is to give you peace. Joshua chapter 21, verses 44 and 45 talk about how God gave Israel peace on each side, on every side of them, just as He he had promised. But we know what's coming next week in the book of Judges. We studied that book last year. The people of Israel, they fall and they fail. And after several centuries, they end up being cast out of the land and exiled. And just to end with this, the writer of Hebrews picks up on this this very story in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 4. And he saw this and he said, man, Israel's not at rest. They're not, I mean, they're being oppressed, you know, in his day, they're being oppressed by the Romans. They're, they're persecuted. They're, they, they, the temple's been destroyed now twice for the author of Hebrews. The temple's been destroyed. The, the people of Israel is not at rest. So either God's a promise breaker 
or there's a greater rest for us that it still awaits. And he makes this argument in Hebrews chapter 4. And he says, Then the conquest of Canaan must just foreshadow a greater rest than God will bring to us, that, will, than God will, that God will bring to his people. And so my question to you today is, maybe you've experienced this spiritual inner chaos of the soul. And the fact is that you long for rest. And how do you find that rest? And the writer of Hebrews says, don't harden your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart to the word of the Lord. The way you experience rest is by submitting to the word of the Lord because victory and rest are conditioned upon our obedience. And when we obey and when we believe the gospel, we, f- we find forgiveness of sin. We find freedom from the dominion of, evil, of the evil one. We find a new heart. We find a new mind. We find a new purpose. And we find a new family because our leader is better than Joshua. The new Joshua leads us into a greater rest because you know what Joshua is in Greek? Jesus. Did you know that? Jesus in Greek is Joshua in Hebrew. So so guess what Mary would have called Jesus? Yeshua. Joshua. God saves. (laughs) There's a greater rest for you to experience, and it's through repenting of your sin and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't repent, there is utter devastation awaiting. Let us not hide it. Let us not think that we can fool God or the people around us because we're becoming something when we choose evil. And if you're choosing evil in your life and you're trying to hide it, your sin's going to find you out. And so today, submit to another leader, another Joshua, so that you can find the peace, the rest, the joy, the satisfaction, the salvation that God has designed for you to experience in Him. Let's pray together.